0: This week, we also have another story of students taking on mountains of debt only to have the high-paying jobs they were promised out of reach. Law school, which was once seen as a great path to a well-paying job, is the latest to be scrutinized as students often take out six-figure federal loans. Recent graduates of the University of Miami School of Law borrowed a median of $163,000, and two years later, half of them were only earning about $59,000 or less, making it difficult to pay down their loans. For more on how some law school students are killing themselves with debt, we'll speak to Andrea Fuller, reporter at The Wall Street Journal.
1: First of all, I'll say that I think there's a popular misconception out there that you go to law school and you graduate and you make six figures. That's true for a certain subset of law school graduates. I think that's true very much at some of the top law schools in the country. What is true for more law school graduates at lower rank, but even good law schools, is that you'll graduate making between 45 and $75,000 a year. And only a sliver of the top students get access to those big firm jobs. Now, while I think a lot of people would consider $70,000 a year to be a pretty good salary, for these lawyers, some of them have $300,000 in student loans. And so what we're finding is that it's very difficult for people to pay back a $300,000 loan on that kind of salary.
0: Yeah. You mentioned in the article, starting lawyer salaries generally fall into two clusters. So about Mm $45,000 to $75,000 for public service and small firm attorneys. And if you're lucky, you know, you graduated from a big name school, all that, and you get placed in a large firm, you could make closer to $190,000. So, those are kind of the two categories there. For this story, you focused a lot on the University of Miami School of Law. The median that was borrowed for their students was 163000 And two years later, half of them were earning $60,000 or less. And uh, it was pretty tough for a lot of them to start repaying those loans.
1: So Miami is a top 100 law school. Consistently in US News and World Report rankings, which all law schools sort of, you know, it's their Bible. But at the same time, of those top schools, it had the biggest gap between debt and earnings. So we wanted to look into Miami and figure out why that is. Now, those salary figures, the $59,000, is from graduates um, who graduated about five years ago. So it's going to be a little bit higher now. But regardless, that's a big gap between the debt and the earnings. And a lot of these students, years ago, when you went to school and you took out student loans, you were supposed to pay over the next 10 years, you paid off your student loans. Well, now that's been dragged out to 20 or 30 years. People are on these much, much longer payment plans, and they're enrolling in income-based repayment, which means that your payment is set according to your income. The problem is when you're on a plan that says you can pay less because you don't earn that much, your interest continues to accumulate. So what we're seeing for even some of these lawyers, that their balances are growing, not shrinking. And that's happening overwhelmingly for the recent Miami graduates.
0: The simple question is, why are these students taking on so many loans? And it seems to center around two things. First, obviously, the tuition for these law schools have been going up year after year. That's one thing. The other part of it is this uh, grad plus loan program, where basically you can borrow up to the cost of tuition plus fees plus living expenses. So a lot of these uh, younger students who you know might not have as much experience with money, they're taking out the maximum loan possible. And a few years down the line, once they finish law school boom, now they have this, whatever it is, $300,000 of debt.
1: So yeah, there are a couple different things there, which is one, I think a lot of people, readers will write me and say, they should be smarter than this. They can look up the numbers. I think that there are a couple things at play here, which is one, law schools really market themselves. I mean, they're a business ultimately, and they're marketing themselves as, you know, they're not going to put your pay is just going to be so-so on the front of their brochure. (laughs) Right. Nobody would apply Um, at that point. Right. And so, I mean, that's what one of the professors in our story says. He says law schools engage in this kind of magical thinking in order to keep the lights on. Another issue is we're dealing with usually people who are 22, fresh out of college. In a lot of these cases, these are kids who, in fact, most of the people I talked to in my story were first-generation college students didn't have families who were guiding them through the process. And I I think there's this myth in our society of become a doctor or a lawyer and you're set. And so they go to law school and they take out three hundred thousand dollars thinking that it's going to be this gateway to a new life. And it doesn't necessarily yield the kind of results that they were expecting. They don't realize quite how hard it is to pay off $300,000 in debt on a sub six-figure salary.
0: Law schools themselves, why are costs going up so much? I mean, what is it for them that they have to keep going? Is it uh, just money grabs? Is it just uh, the cost of operating?
1: That's something we actually spent a lot of time asking various deans about, and unfortunately a lot of those numbers on law school budgets and such are not public, so it's really hard to say definitively. What people told us, though, is that the cost of maintaining various law clinics has gone up, the cost of giving scholarships, which let me come back to, has gone up and law schools also are expected to be revenue drivers for the university maybe not as much as they were pre-recession and i'm talking about the 2007 to 9 recession but they're still expected to contribute now the issue with scholarships i want to flag because law schools they do give away a lot of scholarships and they're very public about this the sort of wrinkle in that is that those are often merit-based scholarships. They go to students who they're trying to recruit because they have high LSAT scores, which will improve their, wait for it, U.S. News and World Report rankings. So ultimately, you see a lot of kids from lower-income backgrounds who are the ones who are borrowing the most.
0: You profiled One student, his name was Dylan. He went to University of Miami Mm -hmm. Law School. You know, in the end, like right now, I think currently he owns about that. He owes about 300,000 in debt. But tell me a little bit about his story, because he's finding trouble right now getting a loan for a home because his debt load is too high.
1: Correct. And I think this is something that people don't think about when they take on this debt is how it affects your credit. So Dylan graduated um, about uh, five years ago from Miami, worked as a public defender for a couple of years, realized it's really hard to survive in Miami on a public defender salary, switched to the private sector. And he thought, OK, I'm making over one hundred thousand dollars now. I'm set. But then he and his fiance went to the bank earlier this year and they tried to get a loan and they were limited in how much they could actually get approved for. And the reason was because his debt was too high, that his debt compared to his income was really out of whack. And that was just floored him because he, he said to me, you know, here I am, an attorney in the private sector making good money. And I can't get even approved to get a single family home. And I've talked to other students, you know, for this story who, who weren't mentioned, but who said similar things that they had trouble getting approved for credit card limits or getting approved, you know, that it affected their credit score. And the reason is, you know, this debt as it accrues, especially as the interest accrues when you're not repaying principal can really be harmful to you financially.
0: You know, all of these stories are just kind of warning signs, you know, cautionary tales, right? These are worthwhile professions. If this is what you want to do, go for it. That's great. Get that loan if you need it. But you got to be smart on that debt load you're going to take and being able to pay it off later. You know, you're not going to everybody doesn't get placed in these high paying professions right away after. So, I mean, these are the cautionary tales you got to be careful for.
1: Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, if you are going to a top law school and you know that you want to go that big law route and, you know, it's fooling but you're ready to do it, you will make that big money. But if you are looking at other law schools, I talked to people for the story who said, oh, my gosh, I turned down another school, you know, where I had a scholarship because Miami was more prestigious. It's important to weigh the financial consequences of a decision and to know about the salary ranges that you're going to see when you you graduate and to see how realistic the debt is to pay off. And I think that a lot of 22-year-olds don't necessarily think about those things.
0: Andrea Fuller, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for
0: having me. Finally for this week, one of the main storylines we heard throughout the pandemic were households getting new puppies. Whether it was to combat loneliness or give the kids something to do, pandemic puppies were all the rage. But on the other side of things, many were already dealing with aging pets. And through the shutdowns and work-from-home setups, many took the time to say goodbye to beloved pets. For more on another perspective on pandemic pet life, we'll speak to Hardhead Rebus, reporter at The Washington
2: Post. We were... Just in the midst of losing our dog Riley and and even on our street on our block we live in suburban Maryland we had our neighbors getting puppies you know during this time like you mentioned people being home and having more time for our we have three kids at home and our schools you know schools uh, went remote all activities ceased um, sports and other things like that my wife and I were both working from home And like a lot of our neighbors um, had time to spend. So we started seeing, you know, people getting puppies behind us. There was a puppy I mentioned in the story. Our our good friends and neighbors across the street from us got a new puppy as well. Um, But yeah, but we were home with with our 13 year old. Um, I guess she would have been around 12 then when when the pandemic started, Boxer, who in normal situations, you know, um, we would leave the house for all day long and, and we had a dog walker who would come once a day and let her out to go, to go to the bathroom and take her on a short walk. But she was, she was home most of the day um, while we went to work and to school. And, uh, and being home, you know, there is a sort a certain amount of of, 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 of grace in getting that time with her uh, uh, when other times we'd be too busy to spend. And we started noticing like, you know, things that we, we're just too busy to do, especially during the weekdays is, you know, going on walks through our neighborhood and bike rides and, and just little hikes that we found in the park and things that we were trying to do because we couldn't, you know, do the other things during the, the lockdown and during the pandemic and we would take her with us. And, and it really was like this really nice way to, to spend time with, with, a, with our, with our dog again. And, um, and then I talked to other people who had similar situations Um. And reached out to to some to some folks. I found it in, in in Reddit communities where people had lost dogs, and I talked to some grief counselors who put me in touch with with people that that were going through this. But almost everyone, you know, as as sad as it was to lose a pet during this time, um, felt grateful to have that time to be with them. And even if it was just, you know, like our dog wasn't at that point in our life wasn't you know, actively running and we weren't doing a lot of right. things, but she was just there on the couch, you know, behind us while we were doing Zoom calls or our kids were on remotes learning in school. And it just came as this routine of having her there, which felt very comforting. Right. And that's something that a lot of people we talk to also experienced, or I talked to also experienced.
0: I mean, that's totally it, it right there, right? You you go to work, you're not there for many hours of the day, but when things get flipped upside down and they are there so long, that extra visibility it means a little bit more and and obviously not to diminish anybody who lost a person, a family member throughout the pandemic, but a lot of time for pet lovers, you know, losing a pet just hits differently, you know, and it makes you reflect on different things somehow. So it, uh, yeah, I I mean, I would definitely, I got to spend a lot more time with my dog. He's like one or two, I mean, he's two years old right now. So we had him when he was one. So he kind of was growing up through all this, but uh, I, you know, I reading your story, I I remember my old pup, you know, and and when he was older and, and, getting on his years and, and passing away and everything. And yeah, it just really, it hits you differently a lot of times. So tell me about some of the stories that other people felt, uh, you know, they sell, you know, the, the effect of what happens after, right. Because they pass away and a lot of people said they felt untethered was a word that I pulled out from the article. They didn't know what to do anymore because you know, that daily routine was gone now.
2: Right. And, and so I talked to, um, a grief counselor named Jessica Corle, um, from Washington D.C. and she, she used that term and it was this feeling that one of the people I talked to, um, Megan McCormack, she was in Perth, Australia, and she lost her her border terrier, Briarly, and just this feeling of not you, you get in your routine right and, and and you know whether it's it's letting the dog out in the morning and, and feeding the feeding the dog and going on a walk and feeling that. Um, and Coral described this feeling of, of not knowing what to do with yourself when that presence is there. Um, and it was heightened by just being home all the time, you know, and and not having something to sort of distract us from that grief. Um, in another situation, you know, you may lose a pet, but you still have to go to work. You still have to go to school. You still have to get the kids ready to go to school or do something else. But, but here you were just home and, that daily routine of of, of spending time with your dog sort of made you feel like you weren't really sure what to do. And, um, you know, for, for um, one of the people I talked to Julia Renike, who's a a stock clerk uh, for food retailer in in, in Germany mentioned that, that she kept looking, she'd come down and kept looking. Um, She had her dog Yuna die and she kept looking for the dog to be there and I, I, you know, I felt that sort of too, and my wife and I talked about that too. Where our dog had this, um, Riley had this, this sort of a tick. She would do. Um, she couldn't walk up our stairs, so she'd wake up in the morning and kind of go to the end of the stairs and shake her head, and you'd hear this like flopping of the ears. Um, it was almost like an alarm clock, and I knew I get one of us had to get up and let her outside <laughs> right. to, go, to go outside. And and you didn't hear that, and it was it was weird, you know, and your your brain was almost like used to that and, and that sound. And um, yeah. And so you kind of like, because we were just so, you know, for us, at least we were just so tethered to our homes that, you know, that feeling of not having that around us was, was sort of untethered. Um, And and you also mentioned before, like, right, like, you know, the people have lost loved ones, you know, and so many people have lost so much during this pandemic. So this was not a story to, to, to kind of compare these two, but right. one of the, one of the um, grief counselors I talked to, Khalil uh, Sakakini mentioned how that, that, that a, a death of a pet almost heightened this, this feeling of grief that we've all had through this pandemic. So for some people, he, some of the, the clients he talked to, they may have had another love, a a human loved one pass and the death of the pet sort of brought about all these feelings that they had been kind of holding on to um, throughout the pandemic. And he he saw that a lot with the clients he talked to.
0: Yeah. I mean, I enjoy many stories about pets and and I saw the headline that you had for for your article and I knew right away was something I want to talk about. As, As you mentioned, you know, not to diminish anything else, this is but this is um some perspective, right? On the other right. side of things that were happening throughout the pandemic. As we mentioned at the beginning, pandemic puppies. It was a huge boom for the pet know. industry, all that stuff. But this is yeah. uh, the other how pets were affected, how we were affected through a lot of those closures and stuff. And, and that that is that other flip side. You know, people went through this also in their loneliness and their isolation and the craziness of kids being at home. This was the other stuff. And and uh, I, you know, I I I have to say I, I really the emotion in your writing when yeah, you're talking about yeah. Riley a lot. It, you know, it, it means something to kind of connect with that because a lot of people go through that same thing.
2: Yeah. I mean, people were home, you know, and, and we were home with our pets and, and that was one thing that in, in a lot of the people I talked with and especially people that were, that were home alone, right. That were, that were, that, you know, were, their pets became their companion through this really difficult time that we've all experienced. And, that companionship you had with, I mean, we, we have it, you know, it's structured in this story around dogs because this is our dog issue, but it, it you know, we talked about other pets as well with some, some of the folks I talked to cats, uh, birds, you know, people felt this very strong connection just because they were home so much and with them and, and right. It just this pandemic sort of heightened these losses. But at the same time, like you said, like it, it, there's a great, you having this great grateful for the time that you had to spend with this, with this important being in your life.
0: It's a really great story, a p- very personal story. I suggest everybody go out and check it out, uh, read it, and they can find out, uh, you know, what happened to Riley and all that stuff. But just a, a, a great look into all of this. Jorge Rebus, reporter and video journalist at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive and iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.